This morning's scripture comes from Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord, more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Jenny. So again, good morning. Good to see you. Thanks for coming uh, this morning to be here with us. Uh, These are anxious days. Uh, We could go down the list of things. Uh, Coronavirus, the stock market tanking earlier in the week. Pictures of empty airports that have an eerie post-apocalyptic look to them. Uh, but the one that really shook me the most was professional sports cancellations. What are we going to do with all of our free time? Uh, For much of this past week, I found myself anxiously scrolling through Twitter or Facebook waiting to see what would come next because it seemed like it was one thing after another all week long, and it was overwhelming. And so what wonderful providence to be in Psalm 130 this morning. The psalm begins in verse 1, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. And it's an appropriate place to begin because times like these can sink you to the depths, which is an allusion to the sea, which for the ancient Israelites was a place of chaos uh, and fear. Uh, They were very afraid. The sea was this chaotic monster that needed to be subdued by God. And so what you see here, the author is saying that that, that, um, the author of the psalm is drowning Despair is setting in. It's something more than anxiety. Uh, Eugene Peterson's translation in the message gets at it, I think. He said, the bottom is falling out of my life. That's the way he translated it. Help God, the bottom is falling out of my life. And that's the way that it felt for much of this past week for many of us. Psalm 130 is such a treasure because it models for us how to deal with times like that. In fact, how to flourish and thrive through, through times like that. How to sing our way through times like that. Because these are songs, remember? They're the songs that the the pilgrims would sing as they made their way up to Jerusalem in the times of the feasts. Eugene Peterson makes this point. He says, Psalm 130 grapples mightily with suffering, sings its way through it, and provides a usable experience for those who are committed to traveling the way of faith. And that's a great summary of, of these verses. It grapples mightily with suffering and sings its way through it, And therefore provides a usable experience for those who are committed to traveling the way of faith. Singing your way through suffering, that is what Christians do. In Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas, who were two heroes of the early Christian movement, they were in prison. They had clearly been mistreated by the jailer, as you read. Uh, It says they were in the stocks. In other words, their arms and their legs were splayed out to induce pain and cramping. They were, they were put in solitary confinement. It was the middle of the night. They had been without sleep for a long time, and you can imagine what their state of mind would be. And yet, as you read along in chapter 16, in verse 25, you come to this phrase where it says, and they were praying and singing hymns to God 
and the prisoners were listening to them. They were singing their way through suffering. And the rest of the prisoners were paying attention because they'd never seen, they'd never heard anything like it before. I want to say to us, what an amazing opportunity we have before us to sing our way through these days while the world is watching. It's one of the reasons why we wanted to have these services today. And so if you get sick, you need to go to the hospital and get the care there that you need. But if you need courage, if you need emotional, spiritual strength to face the next however many weeks and whatever might come, you need to come to church and watch the people of faith sing their way through these days. And join in however you can. And so that's what this psalm really shows us we're to do. And it also shows us kind of the four things that have to be true of your life that you have to already be doing. If you have these four practices, if you have these four ways of living kind of implemented into your life, then they are the thing that allows you to sing your way through times like this with joy. You have to be crying out, you have to be waiting, you have to be hoping. And you have to be fearing in the right way. Those are the four things the psalm really kind of puts us to do this morning. And it's, it, Christianity makes living that way possible even, even in days like these days. Crying out, waiting, hoping, fearing. If those things are a part of your life, then you'll sing your way through suffering. So let's just look at each of those quickly as we walk through this text. First, if you're going to sing your way through suffering, you have to be crying out. Look there at verse 1. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Eugene Peterson's summary of Psalm 130 is great. We've used him a lot in this series. He says that this psalm is suffering proclaimed and prayed. It's an emotionally honest approach that doesn't minimize the way this world can rip your heart out, and it can. But it also knows where to take the complaints, to God. He goes directly to the Lord with the things that are bothering him. There's a genre of prayer in the Bible known as lament. And in lament, you're airing your dirty laundry, you, you don't hold back. You say all the stuff that's on your heart. You, you really, you, it's, it's like no filter praying. Doesn't matter how irreverent it might be. You raise your fist. People, people laugh this morning because I said you raise your fist and you cuss at God. If you have to and you hold nothing back. And they said you waited until we live stream this to the world to tell people to cuss at God. But sometimes you need to do that. Because, of course, what matters when you're talking to him is not that you say it right, but that you are talking to him and that you keep talking to him. You should never be afraid of the things you feel as long as they keep you talking to God about it. People of great faith in the Bible, people like Job and David and Solomon, they had some pretty awful things to say about God. They were pretty upset at times about the way their life was going. They proclaimed their suffering with a loud voice, and it's right to do so, but they never talked about God behind his back because they knew that would do no good. They were pretty angry about the way things were happening, but they also knew that though, though God might be the cause of their suffering, he was also the only one who could do something about it. And so you see things like this, people saying, who have I in heaven but you? Where else can I go? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. They prayed their suffering. So the psalmist says, listen up, God. I've got some things i got to get off my chest. And as soon as he starts to sink into the depths, he immediately, the impulse of his life is to go vertical. 
is to go vertical. What about you? Is that your impulse too? Because you can be crying out or you can be doing what? What's the opposite of what the psalmist is doing here in verse one? Well, you can say on the one hand, there's no use crying over spilled milk and suck it up and get to work. Put on a happy face, pretend it's not a big deal. But that's dishonest. And that's the problem. It's not living from the depths. All that stuff is down in there deep and you're just ignoring it. And it's actually a really bad strategy because the analogy I would use is like a beach ball that children try to keep when they're playing in a pool or at the beach, try to keep it under the water. You know what I'm talking about? You've seen that? If you drop a rock into the water, it sinks all the way to the bottom because the rock is heavier than the water that it's pushing out of the way, that it's displacing on its way down. But a beach ball is airy. And the heavy stuff, the water is heavier than the ball and so the heavy stuff underneath it will eventually win and push the ball up out of the water and that's the analogy here that all of that heavy stuff you're feeling if you don't deal with it it's there and it will eventually push its way to the surface but if you stuff it down when it does it will come out in all kinds of unhealthy ways and stress and insomnia and physical sickness and pain and volcanic emotional eruptions and so forth and so it's just better to be honest about your feelings from the beginning God can handle it be crying out you can also though be talking about God behind his back see there's a difference between lamenting and complaining lamenting is a good thing it's complaining about God to God you're talking to God you're dealing with God you're taking things vertical but complaining is a bad thing it's talking about God behind his back and typically what when you're complaining You're after sympathy. You're wanting someone to tell you it's okay to take your side. But think about it. You're wanting someone to take your side against who? Against God. And I don't want to water that down. It's a form of idolatry. Because see, when you're hurting, you want somebody to say, I see you and I'm sorry. And so sympathy that others gives that others give can become a convenient substitute for the comfort that God promises that Jeff talked about a minute ago. There's a verse in Philippians chapter two that says, do all things without complaining. And we should put ourselves to the work of that in the coming days. We should do even this without complaining. I read that verse this past week and I noticed there's a cross-reference in my Bible to flip to first Peter chapter four, verse 19. And the two really stand in contrast to one another. Let me read that verse to you. It says, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while continuing to do good. And so those are the two options. You can complain or you can entrust your soul to your creator and continue to go about doing good. Psalm 130 says, if you want to sing through your suffering, you have to already have been working out this habit of going to God with your heart, with all of your brutal honesty with the real you, not the right you, dressed up the way you think he might want you to be to come into his presence. The real you. Because what God wants most is to connect himself with the real you. That's where he goes to work. Secondly, if you're going to sing your way through suffering, not only do you already have to have this habit of kind of crying out from the depths, but you also have to have the habit of learning what it means to wait. You have to be waiting. Now skip over verses three and four for now. We're gonna come back in a minute, but look at verse five where he goes on to saying, we've been singing about this all morning. I wait for you, 
I wait for you, Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord. More than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. Psalm 46 is an absolute, a prayer of absolute trust in God, which is why we read it today. But it says again, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the sea, though its waters roar and foam. Those, those are timely words. Psalm 46 also shows us what trust looks like on the concrete of our lives. Let's listen to verse 10 again. He goes on, in light of all that he said to say, be still and know that I am God. And that is perhaps the best description of what the Bible means by waiting. I had a, I had a, a couple of sleepless nights this past week, not because I was necessarily anxious, at least not knowingly, but uh, I think the just the anxiety of the week started to kind of manifest itself in some physical things that really kept me not able to sleep really well. But it's miserable, isn't it, when that happens to you? It's just the worst thing, especially when you have a series of nights where it happens. You're up in the middle of the night, and uh, you know you know the morning is going to eventually come, but you can't make it come. You can't do anything to speed up the clock. All you can do is wait. But waiting is not passive resignation. It is, according to the Bible, strategic non-doing. It's being still, intentionally being still, because you know that God is at work. And it's his work and not yours that brings salvation. And, but it's, it's, it's being still in order to know God. That's what verse 10 says. That is, to give him your undivided attention. Waiting, I would say it this way, waiting is an act of flexing your believing muscles. Because unless the Lord builds and unless the Lord watches, those who build and watch do so in vain. Now, the opposite of waiting is striving. And here's what striving sounds like. If it's going to be... It's up to me. Gosh, it's so hard to be still, isn't it? I, uh, I, I know I'm, I'm a weird person and you need to pray for me and I kind of process this stuff out loud all the time with you, but the most terrifying thing in my life that I'm aware of, the most terrifying moment that I can imagine is when there's nothing to do. It's true. When literally you're up against something and you say, okay, what do I got to do? There's nothing to do. No, come on, there's always something to do, right? But the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. And how that works is doing, doing is so important to so many of us because it makes us feel godlike. There being something to do means there's some way that we can still kind of be in control of things. And here's the reality, in times like this, what we're facing collectively, can we just name what it really is? In times like this, we don't lose control of our lives. We lose the illusion that we were ever in control in the first place. You feel it most, I do, when there's nothing to do but wait. So the story of the church doesn't begin with striving. The story of Christianity begins with waiting, with prayer. And when you're waiting for somebody, you're saying whatever you're about to do can't begin until they get there. And so the church waited, and eventually God came. He showed up. And then the mission really began, and the rest of the story in Acts is the church trying to play catch-up with Holy Spirit. Now, the prophet Isaiah has famously said that those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength, and they will mount up with wings as eagles and run and not be weary and, and so forth. Now, it's a much-beloved verse, but why is that? What is it about waiting that brings such this 
spiritual energy into our lives. Well, waiting puts you squarely in the realm of God's doing, which is where the real action is to begin with. And so Ray Ortland in a tweet yesterday remembered the sage advice of a saintly father in the church he grew up in who in hard times would just go about to the younger people saying, isn't this great? Now we have the privilege of seeing what only God can do. And that's what I would say to you, isn't this great? In the coming weeks, we have the privilege of seeing what only God can do. See, if you're waiting, not striving, you know the important truth. And here's the most important truth. That something is happening even when nothing's happening. Because God is always at work. And that's the reason to sing, even through times like we're facing now. But thirdly, not only do you have to be crying out and waiting, but thirdly, if you're going to sing through your suffering, you also have to be hoping. It goes on to say this. Verse 7, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Now hope in the Bible is faith looking forward because there's a story that's being written and we might be in the middle of the scary part but it's not the end. There's a happily ever after that's on the way and I don't know how it's going to come or when. I don't have any of the details (laughs) but I do know that all of God's stories are resurrection stories. Can I say that again? All of God's stories are ultimately resurrection stories. Do you believe that? Let's say it one more time just in case. All of God's stories our resurrection stories. Now, the resurrection takes longer to come in some cases, but ultimately that's true, and the psalmist knew it too. Listen to him again, verse 7 and 8, with the Lord is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel. That word redemption means rescue. It means being t- bad being turned to good, sadness made up for in a happy ever after ending. But notice it doesn't just say that God redeems. Look at the wording carefully because it's important. He sa- it says, with him is redemption. In other words, resurrection stories are the only kinds of stories that God tells because he is the main character in every story. And this is what he's like. He's a redeemer. He's a rescuer. He's a savior. So when he inserts himself into the story, guess what happens? Rescue. Redemption. Resurrection. With the Lord is plentiful redemption, it says. He overflows with it. It's what he's always doing. He can't help himself. It's just what comes naturally out of who he is. Now, when you read Hebrew poetry, you've got to put the coupled lines together. That's the important thing to know. Again, the force here is not what God does. It's what he's like. It's who he is. And so we read, with him is redemption. Because in the previous line... Look at what you see in the previous line. With him is redemption because what we read just before, because with him is steadfast love. And those two things go together. With him is redemption because previously with him is steadfast love. And that's that beautiful word chesed. God's one-way love that has nothing to do with us or what's going on in our world. There are no fluctuations in God's love. He loves us no less when the stock market arrow is pointing down and is red than when it's green and pointed up. He can't not love This is Calvary love, uneven, me for you, love. What a great opportunity this morning for us to remember our gospel, that Jesus Christ gave his life on the cross to redeem us from our sins, as the psalmist says here, and he was raised on the third day so that all of our stories might become resurrection stories too. Now that's not an overstatement. I think biblically I'm within what the Bible says there. 
Dostoevsky, to quote him, he says, something so precious is coming to pass that it will ultimately suffice for all hearts and for the comforting of all resentments. And so hope is the opposite of desperate and panicky manipulation. It's the opposite of scurrying and worrying. Hope is not a dream. It's not spinning an illusion or fantasy to protect us. It means a confident, alert expectation that God will do what he said he will do. The opposite of hope is hysteria. And we've seen a lot of that in these days, haven't we? They took my sports away from me, guys. I mean, there's a fear that moves you to take wise precautions. And then there's an irrational, unreasonable panic that comes from expecting tomorrow to be worse than today and on and on and on until we wake up and find we're all living in some young adult dystopian novel. Which might one day happen. But I don't think we have any reason to believe it's on the near horizon. Hope doesn't look at tomorrow through the fears and worries of today. Hope reimagines what is right now. What we're facing right now in light of the promise of what is on the way. In other words, this is important. You've got to know this. It doesn't move from today forward. Your life shouldn't emotionally move from today forward. For a Christian, your emotional life, it, it, comes, it moves from tomorrow backwards. Because we know what comes tomorrow. What? Redemption. Resurrection. We don't know when. We don't know how. We don't know how soon, but we do know that the spell will soon be broken and magic will fall from the sky making everything beautiful again. The snow will soon thaw and spring will soon come, which is probably not an appropriate analogy for Florida, but we'll stick with it. Which is, of course, you know what happens in Narnia because Aslan is on the move. And that's true in a jail cell. It's true in the middle of a pandemic crisis. And so if you're hoping then you'll be singing. You'll sing through your suffering because you'll realize there's cause to sing. We sing not for the sake of what we're experiencing today, but we sing because of what we expect of tomorrow. But lastly, if you're going to sing your way through suffering, then you have to be doing all these things. You have to be crying out, and you have to be waiting, and you have to be hoping. And where all that comes from, like that all comes from this last thing. If you're going to sing that way, then you also have to be fearing. The theological center of the psalm is back up in verses 3 and 4. So look there. It says this. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who would stand? But with you there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are feared or that you might be feared. Now, this is really a psalm about forgiveness. The imagery of the depths describes guilt and shame. It's, It's a person drowning under the weight of their sins. So you have Psalm 88, which says this. You have put me into the depths. In the regions dark and deep, your wrath lies heavy upon me. You overwhelm me with all of your waves. So it's the description of a person who is just coming undone because of the sense of dread and condemnation they feel because of their sins. And because of that, the way they experience life is just like wave after wave of judgment that's just sending them down to the bottom of the ocean. And so why are we talking about suffering if that's really the point of this psalm? Well, because when a storm hits, the real storm is the one that happens on the inside. The one described there by the psalmist in Psalm 88. If you think of Jesus and the disciples in the boat, and I know I keep coming back to this story, but it just, it really is probably my, my favorite story in all of the Bible. They're on the lake and the storm comes up, but that's not the real storm. The real storm is what happens in the very next bit 
where they turn to Jesus as the winds and the waves are raging and they say, Lord, do you not care that we are perishing? The storm they were in the middle of separated them from his love. Their circumstances made them question his love. Or if you want to say it another way, storms bring out all of the condemning feelings, the internal judgments we live with, the the sense of condemnation and the overwhelming sense of, of judgment coming against our sins that can be right there in our hearts. That's the real, the depths. Those are the depths. Now, why does this happen so easily to us? Why is it that we find ourselves in this place over and over again? Well, because we know what, uh, that what the psalmist says in verse 3 is true. We feel it. It's right there. It's a reality in our souls. If you, O Lord, he says, should mark iniquities, who could stand? Listen, friends, if God was in the business of counting sins, then no one stands up. We're all condemned. There's an objective judicial sentence that we are all under because of sin. And it can, for the most part, remain beneath the surface of our lives. But when a storm hits, what happens is, is it the storm brings it to the surface and we feel it. Because, to be true, tr- to, be, to just be truthful, we're all moralists at the end of the day. By that I mean we believe that God is good to the good people. And so if it's going bad, you're probably being punished for being bad. At least that's the way it feels. And that's the real storm. And so if in the coming weeks that starts to happen to you, if, if what's going on starts to separate you from a sense of being loved by God, if you, if you find it hard to keep yourself in God's love because of what you're experiencing in your life, you have to deconstruct your wrong believing. You have to fight for joy and peace. And the way you fight for joy and peace is by keeping yourself in God's love, as Jude reminds us. And these two verses show us how. It says, if God counts our sin against us, we're all condemned, but that's not the way it works. Verse 3 is not the way it works with God. Verse 4 is the way. If, we, if that's true, we're condemned, but it's not the way it works, thankfully, because instead of judgment, there's forgiveness. Look at verse 4, but with you, there is forgiveness, therefore you're feared. Now, how can that be? And the answer for us is found in Jesus Christ. The beautiful gospel truth is that God does count sins. He's a God of infinite justice, and that's a good thing, but he does not count our sins against us. Instead, they were counted against Jesus Christ. He was sentenced and condemned for us in our place, but there was no sin in him. And so death, the right sentence for sin, could not hold him. To use C.S. Lewis's analogy, the stone table cracked in two. In other words, the whole way of relating to God on the basis of our performance was smashed to pieces in Jesus because with him there's forgiveness. And if your faith is in Jesus Christ... Can I just say to you this morning, you are so loved. You're so loved. And it has nothing to do whatsoever with whether you've been good or bad. It has nothing to do with how your life is going. And that's the truth that you have to hold on to when the storm hits. Because it's that, that fearing that comes from that will keep you crying out and waiting and hoping because the right kind of fearing, see, that's the right kind of fearing. That's what it says. And the vaccine that we most need, the vaccine for all of the fear and hysteria is awe, amazement, wonder. That's what the word fear means. Wonder at the truth of God's love for sinners. That's the vaccine. And it can keep you singing even through your suffering. John Wesley 
who is the founder of Methodism, was converted from this text, Psalm 130. One of the most powerful movements of the Spirit in the history of Christianity came from the truth of verses 3 and 4 here. Now, Wesley was a good Christian, such a good Christian that he decided he should be a pastor because that's why most people become pastors, you know, right? Because being a good Christian is not enough, so they have to become a pastor. But then the pastors who realize that not only is being a good Christian not enough, you become a pastor and you realize that's not enough, and so you become a missionary. And John Wesley became a missionary because he thought maybe that would do it. Maybe that would be enough, and it wasn't. Despite all that he tried to do to earn God's favor and love, he sunk into the depths, despairing and despondent. And then one day a friend asked him a simple question. He came to him, he said, John... Do you believe Christ died for your sins? His answer was this, I believe he died for the sins of the world. His friend friend repeated, that's not what I asked you. Do you believe that Christ died for your sins? See, John Wesley had the theology, but it didn't come with any personal experience, that personal knowing that with God there is forgiveness, not just for the sins of the world, but for my sins. With God, there's forgiveness for me. He went back to his room. He grabbed his Bible and just opened it up and it, and it providentially fell open to Psalm 130, to these verses, and he read. And he began to weep. And the next morning, he went to a Bible study on Romans. And it was his conversion experience. And he later wrote famously in his journal, my heart was strangely warmed. And listen, that burning heart, that heart on fire with the knowledge of the love of God for you, that even your sins are no match for his grace, that there's forgiveness with him, that burning heart, that intimate knowing that with God there's forgiveness and love no matter what, that is the spiritual hazmat suit that can keep you from being infected by the real disease. It's no coincidence that John Wesley and his brother Charles went on to write some of the most well-known and beloved hymns of our faith, hymns like, and we could have picked from dozens, but the one I chose was, you'd be familiar, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of his grace. Church, listen, the world is watching. The world is listening. It's looking for hope. Let's sing our way through this suffering. Amen? Pray with me, would you? So, Father, that is the chance and the opportunity that we have before us right now here at the very end of our service to again open our mouths and sing to you, so do give us tongues to sing your praise. Uh, Work in our lives, Holy Spirit, that we would have the right fearing to know that with you is forgiveness. And out of that fearing, we give us the freedom to be crying out and the patience to be waiting and the courage to be hoping despite what we might face today or tomorrow in the coming days. Put a song in our hearts uh, that would sing of the testimony of the great gospel of grace that is ours in Jesus Christ. And may you be glorified in our joy and in our singing. May the world see and, and long to know the hope that is truly ours in you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The reason I believe is I've found it true in my life that faith in Jesus Christ makes it possible to say those words and to sing them. Not only to say them, to sing them say them with joy so if your faith is not not in jesus consider consider the 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 what the power of the truth that christians claim that it makes them people who can be crying out and waiting and hoping and fearing
hearing in a way that causes them to be able to sing in times like this. If your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, then know uh, that whatever we face in the coming days, it is not a verdict on whether or not the words I'm about to speak over you are true. Instead, these words, this benediction, are the lens through which we view whatever comes. The, 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 the truth of whatever comes is defined by what God says to us, not the other way around. Amen? Does that make sense? So receive these words and may they arm you. May they be like a hazmat suit for you as you go uh, into the world to continue to be the church to one another and to the world and to do good and trusting yourself to the one who loves you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.